Hi, this is Richard Triggs, and I'd like to welcome you to the Arate podcast. Today's special guest is Kim Hutchinson, the National Chairman for RSM Bird Cameron. So welcome to the Arate podcast. And for those who haven't listened in before, essentially this podcast is to showcase the careers of some senior Australian and potentially international C-suite executives and non-executive directors, so that those people who aspire to hold these roles themselves in the future can listen to the stories of people who have walked the path before them and hopefully pick up some key learnings which can assist them in accelerating their own career. Before we get into talking about our guest today, let me tell you briefly about Arate Executive, which is my business that I've now owned for approximately seven years. We are a retained executive headhunting organisation based in Brisbane, but servicing our clients nationally. And we offer a range of recruitment solutions that allow organisations to essentially get access to the highest quality of research-based headhunting but at a fraction of the price of what traditional executive search companies charge. So if you have an appetite for executive search within your own organization, I'd certainly enjoy the opportunity of having a discussion with you about this. The other thing that I have done more recently is set up on LinkedIn a group called the CEO Incubator, which now has over 1400 members. And the idea of the CEO Incubator is to allow a forum for peer-to-peer networking across industry. And it's also where we present all of our C-suite and NED vacancies. So if you join that group, which is free, then you'll get priority awareness of those opportunities before they go to the market. There'll be links in the show notes to both Arate Executive and the CEO Incubator. And now let's get on and introduce our guest for today, Kim Hutchinson. Kim Hutchinson joined RSM Bird Cameron immediately from leaving high school and has spent 42 years with the firm, the last 15 in the role of National Managing Partner slash CEO. Kim has a Bachelor of Business in Accounting from Curtin University and a Graduate Diploma in Applied Finance and Investment. He has worked with RSM Bird Cameron in most capital cities of Australia and also now sits on the board of their international division. He's married and he and his wife, Linda, have six children and five grandchildren. Outside of work, he's a very keen supporter of the West Coast Eagles AFL team, so he's feeling rather sad about life given their recent performance, and is also a member of the Western Australian Cricket Association, having been a keen player in his youth. Every week he tries to get out and have at least one long cycle ride in order to keep himself fit and healthy for work. So let's start our conversation with Kim, and I hope you enjoy it. Kim, thanks very much for joining me today. Uh, Really looking forward to this opportunity to have a chat to you about your career and lessons learned along the way, key milestones, etc. But firstly, um, you've just arrived in Brisbane. What brings you to town? Uh, Well, we have a national executive meeting with RSM uh, once every four or five weeks uh, across Australia. Uh, so for the next two days, we are in Brisbane on, on national business as a, as a board meeting. Okay. We meet as a board. And then uh, 
On Wednesday, I'm heading out to to Toowoomba, where right. we've just opened a uh, brand new office in uh, regional Queensland. So looking forward to that. Excellent. How many people are working for you up there? Oh, we've got about ten at the moment. Okay. Uh, one of the one of the uh, challenges we've got is that we probably need some more people. We're looking right. for more people out there. Uh, we've only just started the practice, uh, and uh, so far you, the uh, we've had plenty of um, opportunities. Uh, okay. So we just need to uh, now now zero in on the servicing part of it. So, Excellent. Well, yeah. I'm sure if there's anybody listening yeah, in, uh, that's right. They might uh, pick up the phone and give you a call. Anyone looking for a senior accounting role with an opportunity to, to get onto something exciting, uh, we'd be happy to talk to them. Oh, good on you. All right, well, that's great. Well, look, um, the purpose of this podcast is really to uh, talk to people who have achieved great outcomes in terms of their own career and, and are looking forward to even greater in the future so that people listening in can really get an idea of what you've done and how you've gone about managing your career, etc., and hopefully learn some lessons uh, that they can apply themselves. So how I like to start is just really right back at the beginning if you want to talk to me about you know where you were born and, and uh, your early life in terms of your family and your parents and so on, that would be great. All right, well, you might be very generous in talking about great, but uh, anyway, thanks for that. Well, look, I come from a fairly uh, simple background, Richard. Uh, I was born in a small country town. Uh, my people were farmers, uh, and uh, I went to a very, very small primary school. I think the last year I was in primary school, there was only eight children okay. in, the whole of the, in the whole of the school. Wow. Two, two of them were my brothers, and the other two, two others were my cousins. Right. Uh, so all my primary and formative years were, were farming. My, my younger brother still farms okay. uh, in Western Australia. Uh, and then I had the, uh, I suppose the challenge it was for, for, for a child at that stage, uh, I went away to boarding school in Perth, uh, to, so I went from eight in my last year in primary school to a, I think a school of a thousand, right. uh, living away from mum and dad for the first time, so it was all a little bit challenging, uh-huh. but uh, uh, you know, I was... Uh, yeah, I was blessed to be able to go away and, and made a young boy grow up sure. uh, with all the vagaries of boarding school uh, and the, you know, the love of sport and everything that went with uh, with people and, uh, and scholastically I was able to grow and uh, so that was the early days. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting because my last guest uh, went to boarding school as well and uh, talking to him about what you know effect that had in terms of his formative uh, ideas around his career and, and he was saying that you know when he left boarding school which was a really rigid environment and very routine uh, and then got into university he basically uh, had to suddenly come to grips with the fact he was the master of his own destiny and uh, life went a little bit wobbly for a while what was your experience yeah look at look at boarding school is an interesting uh, an interesting place and I'm sure people could write lots of uh, psychology books on the on the effects and everything else from my point of view look it was great I came from a very sheltered background uh, and to, to to be able to to go through uh, boarding school was uh, yeah it was fantastic. Uh, the friends that we made, uh, yes, look, there was a lot of order. Uh, look, uh, rigid's probably going a little bit too far, but look, I came out the other end uh, a significantly better person, and I think what I did learn, especially in the boarding part of the school, is you know the lifetime friends, uh, the, the 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 differences of people, uh, sure. and understanding that there's a lot more to the world than your own. Own, your own backyard, and as I say, lifetime friends, a, a good appreciation, I think, of a, a good value set that uh-huh. I, I think I've been able to adopt uh, from a family life and from a school life into into business and my own family life, hopefully. Um, and look, I went into university. In actual fact, I uh, I went I left school and went straight into the firm right. uh, forty odd years ago. Right. Um, in those days, they had a day release type system, so okay. I worked three days a week or three and a half days a week. 
The firm allowed me a day and a half to study, uh, which I went straight into accounting. Uh, the firm also had similar values and uh, a very uh, very family-orientated approach at those type of things. So I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really miss a, miss a beat from, right. from school. to. I, I don't know whether I had enough time working almost full-time and studying at the, at, at the same time as well as playing sport and everything. So, um, yeah, no, look, I think it, it, from in my personal experience it was a very good one at boarding school. And as I say, it made a, it made a child grow into a man in many ways. And um, so to have made that decision to go directly from boarding school into, you know, what is still your current employer, uh, you know, what were the options that were available to you and why did you go down that path? Yeah, look, that's a good question, Richard. I mean, my, my father was farming. Uh, the farm wasn't big enough for, the, you know, there was three of us in our family. Uh, my father was in partnership with his uncle. Uh, so there just wasn't enough. I was the oldest uh, at that point in time. Um, and look, I, I was scholastically good enough or had done well. Um, and the firm at that stage was very regionally based uh, in agriculture and, and, and in those areas. Uh, so there was a logical fit. I suppose in my own way of looking at it, my, I know my parents had made great sacrifices to get me to boarding school and I, I, I thought in my own way that at that age it's time you stood on your own two feet and to be able to work and study at the same time was going to take pressure off them and and um, and look, it was a great way to learn because while I was getting the piece of paper, I was also getting fantastic practical advice and I was lucky okay. to work with uh, some great people that even though we were very young, they gave us a lot of autonomy and a lot of responsibility that was you know well beyond our years at the time but uh, as I say it was another part of the growing up process that was was very quick um, and and why accounting versus uh, you know a different profession what was it about it at that time that really took your fancy look I'd, I'd done it you know very very well uh, at accounting when I was at school okay. uh, and got a very you know I got a I think the highest mark um, you know in the school uh, at leaving level the accounting teacher we had was, uh, a, you know, was a very, uh, uh, he was a disciplinarian, I suppose, but he was a great teacher and it just seemed to come naturally. Okay. Um, and I suppose the firm RSM at that stage, as I say, was uh, regionally based, had a lot of farmers mm -hmm. as clients. Uh, we had a lot of offices in the country and therefore I wasn't giving up my roots to, sure. to go into accounting. I was actually complementing the two. And, and it was an enormous benefit to me when I went out, you know, uh, dealing with clients that I actually had that that background and and knew and look you fast forward a number of years from an accounting profession point of view the closer you are to being a trusted advisor and understanding what their problems and what they need to do as opposed to just getting the debits and credit right yeah. uh, are just essential of means in being successful so in actual fact as opposed to kind of swapping horses it actually was complementary in many ways okay and so uh, how long did it take you to do your degree given that you were doing it part-time like that well again I was probably lucky the firm as so did give us a little bit of time out. So it was a three-year course and I finished part-time in four years. Okay. So by the time I was 21, I'd had four years' experience and was fully qualified. Right. And uh, and then the firm made, it's un unbelievable almost, they actually posted me to my first posting in Geraldton, right. which was uh, north of Perth, yep. and gave me responsibility for a large group of clients and uh, the, rest is, uh, the rest is history. Okay, you know, great. So. <laughs> and so, you know, as you say, you've been with the firm for a long time, but uh, I imagine that during that time there have been some key milestones and and some and some pivotal moments in terms of taking your career to where you are now uh looking after the entire business um, <laughs> yeah so you talk us through uh your career trajectory through the firm i mean you've had a number of moves over that time and i might just ask some questions along the way yeah 
thanks, Richard. Well, I, I suppose if you summarise it, um, I think what the firm was able to do and the profession was able to do was that every four or five or six years, there was a new challenge that came up. And uh, and I think if you had, uh, you know, there, there was an opportunity to stay where you were and keep doing what you were doing, or there was an opportunity to, to, to go and do something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very fortunate that I went into a, like a regional manager role in my late 20s. Uh, and then uh, I was asked to go back into Perth to head up the whole of WA regional areas as a director in you know, my early 30s and you know I did that for a, for a few years and then uh, lo and behold a challenge came up in Melbourne to, to replicate some of the things that were done in Western Australia. So before um, we get to there, um, where was the head office at that time? Well the head office has always been in Perth and oh, okay, and, and, right. st- and, and, to, and today is still in, is right, still in head office. Sure. Um, Although the way, you know, we're very diverse, we are one financially integrated practice. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's where I suppose a lot of the back room and the, the head office faculties are, yeah. uh, facilities are. But, you know, we we are we spread our resources nationally. Um, but, but, but the business was already a national concern at that time? No, not to the contrary. Uh, for the first, well, from 1922 to the early 70s, it was only Western Australian based. Right. okay. So we're one of the few firms, uh, really, that in actual fact, instead of going east to west, we actually went west to east. Right. Um, so, yes, so for the first 50 years, we're only in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. In the early 70s, we uh, we went to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the mid-80s, we went to uh, Sydney and Canberra and, and, and those type of places. Uh, I think we ran out of money and people for a while until the late late 80s when we went into Melbourne. Um, so we've just incrementally grown on the way through. So yeah. and, and it's probably less of an issue now, but this idea of the tyranny of distance. So I imagine running an East Coast business from Perth, you know, back in the, the 70s and the 80s must have been pretty challenging. Yeah, well, well, getting back to our, I suppose, our culture and our style and our, and our management approach is that we've always agreed in having a, a lot of autonomy for, uh, for each office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we had partners and managers in the East Coast offices, uh, and I'm a, I suppose there's always a bit of a standing joke that they, were, they were, had to report back to Perth and all, right. those, all those comments that are made. But effectively, in, in a partnership and a professional services group, you need to have a, a spread of talent over the whole country. Uh, our national executive, our national board was made up of a cross-representation of people across the whole nation. Um, and while I suppose our back office and, and our support structures were predominantly Perth, uh, as we grew into Eastern Australia, especially in the 90s, and well, especially now, I mean, um, our National Human Resource Director, for example, is based in Melbourne. Our National Learning and Development Director is based in Canberra. Um, so if we are, if we hold ourselves out to be truly national, then we need to have the sure. truly national resources spread around so that there's not this concept of, you know, east-west. And uh, so it's pretty important the way we structured the business along those lines. But those early days did take a, a fair bit of pioneering and, and a lot of the uh, a lot of our staff did come from Western Australia to set up offices, for example, in Wagga and Albury and Canberra. They were all Western Australian okay. people that started. Yep. But uh, And look, to be honest, uh, I think just about all of them stayed in Eastern Australia. No, right. one, no one went home. And um, what about from your own point of view? I mean, you grew up in the country. You started working in Perth. Uh, when you moved to, per- uh, to Melbourne, I beg your pardon, um, I imagine, you know, it's a very different environment there. What, what were some of the things that you found moving into that environment that you needed to change or some of the key lessons to be able to perform and succeed in that environment? Yeah, look, that's a, a really interesting uh, 
a point, uh, Richard. Um, I mean, w- having come from Western Australia where we, where we were dominant and we had a good market share and where the brand was extremely well known and then all of a sudden being in Melbourne where the, the brand wasn't known at all and our profile you know, didn't match what we had in Western Australia, mm-hmm. clearly there was a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say coming from Western Australia to, to Melbourne and it's a bigger city, settling in, all those other types of things. Uh, but look, I really enjoyed Melbourne. It, it was a new set of challenges. Um, and look, like most management and uh, like most businesses, a predominant part about it is managing the people sure. and getting the people on side and uh, and working alongside and, and getting the strategy right. Um, and so Melbourne, I suppose, taught me that, uh, you know, across Australia there's, there's slightly different cultures, there's yes. different values. Um, and at that stage, we probably still had uh, a fair bit of work to do in developing a truly national model as opposed to a disparate group of offices around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, did you find yeah. that just in general the way of doing business in Melbourne was different to in Perth? Well, the Melbourne practice was, was a more corporate practice than, than the traditional part of the Western Australian yeah, practice. Yeah. Uh, but look, uh, effectively, no, I suppose. It was, we, we weren't resourced. Uh, we probably didn't have the, uh, the scale that we needed to be in Melbourne. So some of the challenges were different. In other words, we needed to build the business. We needed to do mergers and acquisitions. We needed to get you know, critical mass of, 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 you know, in a bigger market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not, not dissimilar to, to Sydney. I mean, uh, you know, you can't be a, sure. a little practice in Sydney and expect to be able to attract the right clients, the right staff uh, to to be able to service those international clients that predominantly come into Sydney. Mm-hmm. And um, at what point then did you head back to Perth? Uh, in the late 90s, I, I, I joined the national executive team in about 1994 mm-hmm. uh, and I went back to Perth in late 98 and I, I went full-time onto national duties then right. and then in 2000 became national chairman or the CEO or national managing partner, whatever title you want to give it. Sure. Uh, so, and look, that was, uh, you know, clearly a, a privilege uh, offered to me by my fellow partners and uh, so the last 15 years has, has really been about you know, building a national business, uh, developing the culture, mergers, acquisitions, strategy, um, yeah, very stimulating. Sure. And so if you look back perhaps over that last 15 years, what, what would you hang your hat on as a particular key achievement and say, you know, this is really a great example of how I've been able to own my role and, and create some great outcomes for the firm? Yeah, well, look, I'd go to great lengths to start with and say, uh, you know, this wasn't this wasn't me. Uh, this was uh, uh, the. I think one of the things we were able to do from two thousand is have a uh, an incredibly uh, good culture, a great harmony among, among the partners. Uh, strategically, for me, it was pretty easy to see. In in two thousand, we only had something like 39 partners and $40 million worth of turnover. And today we've got 100 partners and 100 and, you know, $170 million worth of turnover. Uh, in 2000, something like 65% of our business was probably in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Now more than well over 50% of it's in Eastern Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been able to considerably increase the size in Melbourne, Sydney. We've opened the office here in Brisbane, Toowoomba. Um, so, look, uh, the last decade and a half has really been about uh, growth uh, and growth that's fitted into our culture mm-hmm. uh, and having, you know, without heavy, heavily gearing the balance sheet mm-hmm. and, uh, and look, fundamentally keeping the partnership ethos of which we're incredibly proud of and which we, and which we work very hard you know, to, to, to keep in place. So, look, rather than any individual thing, because you can't do all those things as an individual, sure. um, you are blessed and lucky sometimes to be 
the man out the front. Right. Um, but you're only as good as all those that are working around you that believe in the message and carry the message and implement the message. Um, so we've been very lucky. Mm. Um, we've made our own luck, obviously. you don't. These things don't just happen because of luck. Um, so, look, I suppose if you look back at that period of time, it's been our ability to grow the business from a from, a, I suppose, a one-state practice, even though we'd been in Eastern Australia before that date. I suppose the last uh, 10 or 15 years has been about the growth in the Eastern States. It's been a, also about moving the business from, say, just a, not just, but a, a business advisory type practice to a much more corporate practice, in, in especially in the areas of corporate services and audit, which weren't the traditional um, service lines in Western mm-hmm. Australia. So, yeah, a, a vast movement of, on the on the on the advisory skills. Um, I mean, obviously, a huge increase in the number of people and <laughs> and everything else. So that in itself has <laughs> has its challenges. Sure. I can assure you. So. And I, you've used the word culture many times already in this conversation. I mean, what what is it about the RSM Bird Cameron culture, and uh, what is it that you've been able to maintain? You mentioned maintaining the integrity of the culture that's been so important to your own success. I think even when I reported back, you know, from a university days, joining a firm that had the same values. Uh, I mean, the firm came from very humble beginnings. Uh, it had a strong regional base where, you know, uh, that was important to be close to people. Uh, clients were very trusting, and they were probably less sophisticated in those days. Um, the leaders before, or the partners before, the people before, you know, this current trend were very big on on, on family and 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 th- those type of values and. You know, that all sounds a little bit glib, but I mean, the firm had a share employee scheme in the 1930s, for example. Mm-hmm. They set up a, their own superannuation fund in the in the early 1950s, which were you know these these concepts were 20 and 30 years before that before they became popular in, in mainstream business. Sure. Um, I mean, I know when I was I was uh, probably about a 25 year old, I was invited into the shareholder scheme, so mm-hmm. that the 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 ownership and the management, or at least the ownership of that proprietary interest, went further than just the owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that needed to change, obviously over time, as as models do. Um, last Saturday night, we had a dinner in Perth with all the people that have been around for twenty five years. I think there was twenty five of us there, right. and that was only a quarter of what we've got around Australia. Right. So great loyalty, um, and I think the firm does the right thing by its staff. But more importantly, the staff feel as though they're part of the mm. the strategy and what's going forward. So yeah, we do use that word, and we use that word culture because. It's very important. Uh, I think it's one of those words that uh, can often a lot of lip service be paid absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as the executive chair, how do you proactively uh, drive the kind of culture that you want in the business? Well, I look, look, a lot of it's about visibility. A lot of it's been able, you know, with 28 offices or 30 offices around Australia, I mean, you can't just rule from the ivory tower. You need to be out and about. You need to you need to do the things that you talk about. Uh, you need to invest in people. We need to invest in training, social functions, uh, and all those types of things which seem so so basic. And look, it's really about leadership. Not talking about it, as you say, it can be a little bit lip service. Mm. Uh, and it is about um, you know getting close to people, getting to know them, getting to know their families, getting to know what they want to do in their careers. Creating opportunities for people, uh, and one of the most rewarding part, I suppose, of this of my job, as we've been able to to grow across is to, across the nation, is to see good young people come through and be able to offer them a, a career moving change. Mm-hmm. Um, just last year, I mean, we had an outstanding um, young man in in Perth that perhaps wasn't the opportunity wasn't opening up, but yet 
something came up in uh, in regional New South Wales, and uh, you know he was able to move over and just hit the ground running. And uh, look, I know his his wife and his children and everybody are delighted, and you know so it's a win win for everybody. Sure. Um, so that's I suppose getting to really know your people yep. and uh, and and to be you know to be absolutely a hundred percent honest and straight mm. down the line. Um, yeah, and it, I suppose you've got to be consistent in the message you send and you've got to live that message. Sure. And uh, getting back to, you know, your own career, uh, you mentioned before people have been in the firm over 25 years and obviously there's lots of those people. Yeah. But what do you think it was about you that enabled you to grow to being executive chairman? What what special attributes or how did you manage that process to allow you to, to achieve that? I don't know whether I'd be, uh, I could say that I actually managed the process. I mean, I was always very passionate about what I did and I was, I suppose I, uh, I'd like to think I was well prepared. Uh, I'd like to think that I did, I gave it 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was given the opportunity, to, you know, in my twenties to lead a group of people. Uh, I'd like to think that, uh, I was a good listener. Um, I, I think I had the ability to go back and find out what other people wanted, and uh, and then look. And a partnership is a slightly different model to a to a corporate structure. Sure. Um, I suppose I had the benefit of having practiced in Western Australia. I had the opportunity to come east. I had a good spread of knowledge about the whole of the firm, as opposed mm-hmm. to a specific part of it. Um, and um, so I, I, I was also invited onto our national executive. Uh, in my early 30s, uh, and had a, I suppose a taste of what was happening, and yep. uh, and as succession occurred, and as generations moved on, I suppose I was in the right place at the mm-hmm. right time, uh, having had some I suppose a good cross section of uh, of service. Mm-hmm. Um, because I started as an eighteen-year-old, I probably knew a lot of lot more people, uh, uh, and you know, I suppose my approach uh, that uh, I could work alongside those people, sure. they, they they thought they'd give me a chance of nothing else. So okay. here I am. And I note uh, back in '93, you went and did some postgraduate qualifications in the US. Um, uh, at Virginia, is that right? No, well, look, in actual fact, it was a live-in type thing. In, in they, they actually, in those days, used to fly out to Sydney for right. a period of time. Okay. And look, that was, I think you were talking earlier about uh, opportunities and the firm invested in in that uh, senior management leadership type training and uh, uh, the uh, standard, um, um, sorry, D- the Darden School of Management and... Uh, uh, yeah, they came out and it enabled you to mix with people outside of the sure. firm, with yep. other other walks of life, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a very intensive uh, couple of weeks. Um, so that, and the other thing that I did uh, when I came back out of um, some of the regional areas, and you lose you know, lose a little bit of perhaps uh, having not studied for a few years, mm-hmm. I went through the Securities Institute of Australia, which is now Finzia, oh, yes. uh, into a graduate diploma in, you know, in finance and investment and everything, which again was the, the best postgraduate study. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a really good line of study, very practical, uh, enabled you to, you know, I suppose to get into more networks, to have a broader, a broader sense of what the economic world was all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about in terms of... Uh, your own professional development since then? I mean, as you've grown into larger roles with a bigger remit of responsibility, et cetera, how, how have you 
taken your own um, capability to the next level through the mentoring or coaching or yeah no look I haven't to be honest I haven't you know look you've always got people in your network that uh, and you know I've sat in a couple of outside boards mm-hmm. and you you, you you learn from other chairmen you learn from other directors um, and uh, uh, look and look you, you, the, the, the honest answer to some of those Richard is that you probably don't do as much of that post development stuff that you probably should you get into a role where you're identifying everybody else's needs and sometimes in actual fact you, you, you don't spend as you don't invest as much as you should in your own thing having said that i in in the early 2000s i went on to our rsm international board which was brought in a whole different set of dynamics in many ways um, i mean i suppose you get very used to the australian way of mm-hmm. corporate governance you get the australian way of making decisions the the, the 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 personalities across a boardroom table and then all of a sudden to sit around an international table where there's someone from the us and someone from germany and someone from france and the uk and china and all the rest of it and to see the different ways that people do business and the and the and the i suppose the vagaries of personalities and everything else so look i think it, a lot of that's kind of i suppose more on the job um and and you know working through on those types of things yeah. sure. and look I, you know i'm sure that there's a lot of people who are listening to this who think well, here's a guy who's basically stayed with the same employer from the day he finished uni uh, to now. When you look back uh, um, at that, I mean, do you have any regrets uh, about uh, potentially other things you might have liked to have tried or...? Um, well, absolutely not. I mean, my own style was if it wasn't working for me, I wouldn't have been there. And I think I said earlier, Richard, you know, every four or five years um, there was a new challenge. Uh, look, I think if I'd stayed with the firm and I was doing what I was doing <laughs> 40 years ago, I wouldn't have been here. Yeah. Um, and, and look, there's plenty of people that do stay in the profession and they still do the same things they were doing a number of years ago. That suits their personality. Mm-hmm. It suits their their leadership model. Uh, from my point of view, the fact that there was always a new challenge around the corner, the fact that you were measured on merit, uh, the fact that you know you, they didn't have to check your birth certificate to give you the opportunity, and look, I suppose when I ended up on the national executive and in this role, uh, never a day really goes past that I'm not challenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've been able to do 20 or 30 mergers in the last 15 years. Uh, that's not just the financial integration; it's integrating new people, ideas, concepts, processes, getting continuing the culture that you've talked about earlier, mm-hmm. integrating across the whole thing. So. Um, uh, you know, there's not a day that I don't feel stimulated by the job, and you know, I suppose ultimately you fall in love with the place. <laughs> I don't know that might be a little bit romantic, but uh, you know, you, you you you're in partnership with a lot of people that you like. Sure, um, you've got a lot of people you like working with. Um, you believe in the service that you're. You know, we've got a lot of you know second, third, and even fourth generation clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good place. Sure. Uh, okay. So there was never a need to, to do anything else, um, which probably made the RSM International Board, uh, and I sat on, I've sat on a couple of outside boards uh, in Western Australia to, you know, to perhaps broaden the experience, do some different things, add a bit of stimulus to your thinking, because you can be get you can get a little bit inbred, I think, in right. these types of things. Yeah. Um, so when you're um uh, looking at you know younger people coming into the firm now, particularly Gen Y, and you know their attitude towards uh, <laughs> career and longevity, and the the fact that not only will they probably change employers many times, but they may even change their entire career a number of yes, times. Yeah. I mean, how how do you uh, build a bridge between you know you as somebody who's been in the firm and obviously is still incredibly passionate and have uh, plenty of petrol in the tank to to uh, keep doing what you're doing? 
how do you bridge that gap and, and, and appeal to those people? Well, I think the good part about it, we've got children in those age groups as well, so we've got a little bit of an idea. Sure. We, we've actually bred them. <laughs> um, and look, we've got a lot of young people that have stayed. You know, We've got a lot of people that have been with us five and 10 and 15 years now. I don't know whether they fit exactly into Gen Y or whatever Gen it is. Yep. Uh, look, the basics don't change. The, the basics with people are about you know feeling, feeling wanted, feeling rewarded about what they do, feeling good about how they do it. Um, and look, if, if, the, if the modern way is they're going to change profession, change different things, is that, you know, there's probably nothing that we can do that's going to keep them. I mean, we don't want to handcuff them. We sure. don't want them there because they have to stay there. We don't want them there just out of economic necessity. Mm. We want them there as, you know, active participants in the business. So, um, look, there's, there's things in, in, in that HR area you talk about. I mean, I think most people, the younger people, um, you know, while money is important, what they really want is flexibility. You know, they want fle- flexibility with their technology. They want flexibility with their work hours. They want flexibility uh, not to do the same thing day in, day out. Um, so therefore, you have to be uh, perhaps a little bit more enterprising in, in, in what you offer them to mm-hmm. do. Um, our firm is clearly different to most of our competitors. I mean, we've got a large regional re- representation. So, um, some, pe- some people are, you know, uh, appeal to us more or that we appeal to them than others. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it is a worry from a management point of view when you do see staff turnovers in those, you know, 23 to 30 age groups, which is where they are most mobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do see a lot of people finish their postgraduate qualifications and then head off on the Contiki t- tour yeah. to Europe. <laughs> have their gap but, here. you know, they may in actual fact be a better all-round sure. advisors and have a better appreciation of life and what it's all about. Um, you know, we may have been a little bit rigid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, look, I think, as I say, you've got to look at your own children and um, perhaps, uh, you know, d- you know, I suppose in our days is, you know, work longer, work harder. Uh, the harder you work, you know, the longer you work, the longer the boss sees you working, uh, the, you know, the more quickly you'll be promoted, the more quickly you get a pay rise. They're not, they're not the things that make people get up every morning anymore. Well, in uh, fact, I, I read a, <laughs> an article just last week uh, where the big thing now for CEOs is actually to talk about how much sleep they get and the more sleep they get you know, the, the better they uh, sort of feel about themselves inside that's quite an interesting when you think about where perception was even five years ago yeah, absolutely uh, versus now um, five years ago was a completely different paradigm wasn't it yeah and look you know another five years will be a different one again and th- mm. these things have a habit of swinging and everything I think one of the getting back to some the, the our the our, some of our origins within the organization and and even though we've moved well past being a, a regional practice the regional practice only about 25 percent of the total now but some of that cultural background and some of those values that I referred to earlier, there was a lot of flexibility involved in, you know, uh, when you worked and when you didn't work and how you fitted it all in type of stuff, as long as you produced the, produced the main game. And sure. and our office, uh, even even to this day, I mean, we're not we're not necessarily a big practice. We Collectively, we're a bigger practice, but we're made up of a lot of, uh, especially in our regional areas, we're made up of a lot of very, you know, nice-sized operations. Yep. That, the, you know, where the man that runs the business owns the business and sure. uh, and we're very close to our, you know, we, we live in the communities. Yep. Um, and, you know, whatever needs to happen in the community happens in the community. So, yeah, look, but we have to just be, the, the flexibility is what it's about. And, look, I suppose sometimes I look at, you're talking about the amount of sleep or the work hours and everything else. I mean, sometimes 
sometimes economic cycles have views on how all those things will pan out. But, um, yeah, interesting times. And uh, you talk about uh, your role has remained exciting because you have a sort of a, a big challenge every few years, a new thing to address. So what, what is it for you now? What's the, uh, the challenge currently on the horizon? Well, we probably, as I say, when I go back to 2000, when you start, the, the, when you looked out over the horizon, we knew that there was some basic strategic things, e.g., you know, moving into Eastern Australia and uh, developing you know, our business here into a truly national service offering. Uh, we can tick a lot of those boxes, but, you know, it, it, those things never stop. I mean, we can still see here in Brisbane, for example, I mean, when we're undersized in Brisbane and working passionately hard as part of phase two into Brisbane, mm-hmm. which will involve developing more, you know, audit, corporate services type work. We've opened a new office in Toowoomba. Our strategic plan sees us opening two or three more offices in large regional centres on the East Coast. Uh, there's uh, a number of populations, uh, especially in this state as well, where, you know, they're approaching 100,000 people. Uh, in most of those markets, we believe we can uh, be in the top quartile of service providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got all that history we bring with us. Um, so, yeah, that's some of the areas. Uh, internationally, uh, we've just adopted the RSM brand across the whole world. Yes, which may not seem that much uh, if you just talk about it, but uh, in in basic terms. But for the last ten or fifteen years uh, around the world, especially in the larger markets, e.g., the US, we haven't all been trading under one global brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the adoption of one global brand will mean doing international business is going to be so much easier. Winning international tenders is going to be so much easier. So I suppose in two thousand, when you looked out over the horizon, it was Australia. Um, in two thousand and twenty, we're going to be looking out over the horizon, and the world, as you say, with technology and everything else, is going to be. Um, you know, there's a lot more international work coming in. I think last year our international referrals into Australia grew by something like 25 or 30%. Um, so, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing, obviously, is the traditional way of running an accounting practice is changing, digital disruption, um, yeah, another hackneyed term, but, you know, technology is changing things um, and accounting firms are going to have to, you know, look at things differently. So how do you uh, keep yourself... Uh, up to date with what's going on, you know, particularly in that space, because I agree with you, uh, in the professional services area, all of our professions are under incredible threat of disruption from new technology, etc. What What do you do personally to try and keep yourself aware of growing trends and hopefully stay yeah. on the front of the curve? Look, I suppose the easy answer to that is uh, personally, I probably don't do that much. But what I do do is make sure we surround ourselves with the best people. Sure. And you know, at, at my age and vintage and everything, actually. Doing the doing is probably uh, not one of the strong points. But look, we're investing you know, heavily in technology. We're investing. We've got national heads of divisions that are. It's their responsibility to look at what the trends are. So look, I suppose you know the honest answer is it's a delegated authority, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, my role is to make sure I'm keeping right alongside those people with that high end expertise in those areas. And again, gets back to I suppose the culture of making sure that the firms got a willingness to change and recognise the. Strategy strategic challenges as opposed to staying back where it's traditionally been. Um, most firms are not really good at change. Um, probably the accounting profession is even less uh, adaptable in that area. So I think you know, the roles of leaders is to make sure that you can as I say, facilitate change, be open to change, look at the next opportunity, uh, rather than having any, I suppose, technical skills per se in sure. what's going on. Type of so thing. if you were to crystal ball the profession in, say, five years' time, what, what do you think is going to be the biggest substantive change from a technology point of view? 
Well, I think the digital disruption, the ability to you know to do basic accounting work, uh, you know, through the cloud and wherever else yep. is going to be. I mean, that's already happening. Mm-hmm. I think we need to stand back from it a little bit. Uh, I know when I was a graduate, type of thing, nineteen seventies, that we talked about in those days, people wrote up manual cash books and yeah, things sure. like that, and you know, then they came in with ADP type machines, and then they came out with you know accounting packages. So I think for every decade I've been in the profession, you know, accountants are going to be wiped out because of technology, and here we are, uh, still at the forefront at a lot of those types of stuff. But mm-hmm. I think that that ability to, to do the base work is one of the biggest changes. But I think that's where it goes back to the core service that we provide. If that's all you're ever doing, mm. in other words, if you're only ever lodging a tax return or doing a compliance job, then you were never really the trusted advisor that you needed to be to drive a business. Mm-hmm. And we place a lot of emphasis around being that trusted advisor um, and adding adding on top of the, the of the base rate. Um, and at the moment, and I'm not saying it won't happen going forward, it seems to be some suggestion it can happen in financial planning, is that most people like to talk to a real person about mm-hmm. real things. Mm-hmm. So if you've been through their their growth strategies, if you've been through their children growing up, if you've been through all their phases of their business, if you've been through their births and deaths and divorces and everything else, then you end up in the trusted advisor mm-hmm. category. Mm-hmm. You don't end up in the accounting sure. bookkeeper. So I think those those parts of the profession that have relied on doing that basic stuff uh, – very basic word, I must admit, but that that core is just not going to be there in the years to come. Yeah, and yet we're we're also seeing at the same time, um, and I'm look, I'm not too sure where this ends up in five years' time, but we're seeing at the moment in the with the, the drop in the economy and the economic growth. Uh, I mean, audit fees, for example, have been tender. The fees have been very price sensitive, and yet at the very very same time, we've got the regulator, and this is no no, no shot at the regulator, but the regulator. Uh, both here in Australia and internationally, are putting more and more pressure on quality standards, mm-hmm. on compliance and everything. Uh, you're getting to the stage now that you know there's less auditors in Australia than mm-hmm. there used to be. Um, there's more pressure on the fees. It's left pro- less profitable than it will be. Ultimately, in the next five years, that's going to end up with you know less quality, uh, and which is not a good thing for for corporate Australia. So I suspect that there might be some swing back a little bit in some of those types of things, but it certainly won't be in doing the the tick and flick uh, and that of course is you know also when we're seeing outsourcing into you know, whether it's into Asia or mm-hmm. we might even see you know, what we've got a bit of a term I suppose in Australia here where it's, it's almost insourcing and you know, taking work out of say the Sydney's and sending it to the Aubrey's or the Wagga's yeah, sure. or something like that so where you, you can move your you can move the task to to where there's the where the talent is or where the you know where the most cost effective areas are so look it's a it's going to be a dynamic area but I still have this feeling that the trusted those that are really the trusted advisors and that have got a, a, a closer and a more long-lasting relationship with the client um, are going to be better placed than those that have just been um, stuck in their offices do, doing compliance work. And so uh, do you have a, a formal or an informal way of when you're looking at the younger people coming through the organisation of being able to uh, early uh, to see those skills and attributes of being a trusted advisor identify them early and you know groom those people through yeah well not just as a trusted advisor I mean whether it's you know, some people end up being you know very good technical people that don't want to be on the, on the front so we've you need to identify people 
that perhaps are going to be more in a technical support area. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be able to, and we find, as you say, from university, they, they've usually got all the technical skills, but when it comes to the business skills and the life skills, perhaps not so much. And we have a very early recognition on those types of things. And, okay. and uh, we've got a, a learning and development, whole learning and development section. And we try by the time they're perhaps in their mid twenties, uh, we have what we call the RSM Academy, okay. where we identify people and they go out with outside facilitators into an intensive uh, situation, which is some early grooming, for want of a better word, to, to put some polish on the areas, which is not technical. It's yeah. about managing. At that stage, it's about managing your own career, about sure. developing. Uh, and then we have a staged approach to we go to the next one, which is a leadership management course, which is a whole 12 months intensive situation where it's working alongside the partner and the manager, so they learn through the manager's skills, and then you know ultimately we'll take them through a partner development program, so that yeah, hopefully by the time they get to those leadership roles, um, they've had a fairly good apprenticeship of of skill base, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I take a lot of pride in that, going back to some of the earlier questions. Uh, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say people that came through the 70s and 80s ended up in leadership roles, sometimes because they were just very good at doing the technical or they were the, you know, they did that well, so they must be good at yeah. at the at the management, which is obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, well, not always the case or, sure. if, or ever the case. Um, and I think now we've been able to identify and, and put some science, the, the science of leadership and management, which some say you're either born with it or you're not. But, mm-hmm. you know, my experience through, you know, the, the extra study I've done and the, the development courses and all the rest of it is that you can always learn something from other people um, and you get different ideas from outside the organisation, uh, outside facilitators, working with other people. And, look, um, techniques, of, you know, you might not agree with them all, but they change. Um, leadership styles change. Not And, look, I think that's probably one thing that we try to teach people earlier. Leadership comes in lots of different forms. Uh, not one leadership style works for every employee sure. um, and different leadership styles work for different people. And so uh, I think those are the type of things that we like to try and recognise. Okay. Um, right. And, um, you know, you've talked a lot about the, your success over this period and the team and the culture and, and so on. When you look back on your career, are there any things that in hindsight you think, boy, if I'd had my time over <laughs> again, I would have done that differently? Well, yeah, you, you, you might not have started perhaps <laughs> even though. Oh, look, generally, you know, I don't think there's any milestone situations that, you know, would you have done it differently? Look, I think one of the areas that I just touched on there, I, uh, what I've learned in a leadership role, which perhaps I, um, if I'd gone back, I think if we'd had at, at that stage more leadership and management training, the science of leadership and management training in a formal sense, it would have made it a lot easier to take those roles on when they were... thrust upon you. Sure. Uh, I think as a general partnership group and as a leadership group, if we'd had more support in those areas and had some more structure around those areas, um, we would have ended up with a better product. Mm Look, the other things that you learn, I mean, in the professional services areas, there's always the, the risk areas of professional indemnity and you know, uh, litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, part of my school of hard knocks was to go through one of those in the 1990s, okay. which put a whole different dimension on, ooh, uh, there's another side of this. There's, sure. a, there's the dark side of the moon as well. Yeah. And look, that experience, uh, which wasn't very pleasant, 
um, probably taught me that you know things on the, the in the areas of risk and and governance and um, how you coordinate things is that yes you have to be you know you have to be, you have to be careful on those types of things. So that experience, as I say, in the nineteen nineties with a large PI matter, which uh, which you know which every professional firm ends up with at some stage, probably put a whole new dimension on um, on on management and structures and processes and and those types of things. So yeah, look, if I had my time again, I would want to go through it uh, mm-hmm. because it was very stressful mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know it was almost I suppose in some ways it, it, it affected our culture affected our harmony uh, those dark cloud things have a habit of mm. really striking at, uh, at the heart of the soul of the organisation sure. um, so look I suppose we're looking back I'd rather not have done that and had to go through that but I suppose looking at the at the positive side of it having gone through that experience uh, you only could but learn it's so part uh, of your scar resume yeah, so it, it is it is and I think yeah. everybody and look I think uh, over the period of time uh, dealing with lots of people uh, look I'm, you know, I'm delighted to say that 90% of the time it's very positive it's very you know go forward and uh, strategic and all those nice things but you know 10% of the job has always been involved around the less pleasant things and you do learn you, you are b- battle scars is a wonderful word Richard absolutely know? and uh, you know 15 years in this role now uh, no doubt there's been some uh, times where you know you need to uh, revitalize and and just keep your motivation and uh, no doubt after 15 years uh, you've developed some tools and strategies to do that for yourself what are the kind of things yeah. that you do well look I suppose on the um, well I suppose there's the personal side and there's the business side I mean from a from the business side point of view uh, while I've been in the chair, we have a five or six person board, mm-hmm. um, and uh, their terms, you know, are three years. And so we've always had a good cross section of people rolling in and out uh, mm-hmm. as they as they retire and as they come in. And the great thing about from an organisational point of view, there's always new ideas coming on board to reinvigorate and keep you going and all the rest of it. Uh, as I say, some of the um, the mergers and acquisitions we've done around Australia in the last 15 years have in, in themselves have you know, generated new opportunities for work and all the rest of it. Sure. Look, on a, on a personal side, I mean, you see your children you know, go through school to leaving school and university. You go from playing sport yourself to watching them play sport. Uh, you know, I'm a, you know I, I love the, the AFL. I'm a member of the West Coast Eagles, so we won't talk about the grand final <laughs> just at the moment. You know, I've, I've got a push bike I get on on the weekends and uh, put the earphones on and ride, ride some kilometres and clear the head and yep. uh, do all those types of things. Oh, so, yeah. And so what about uh, looking into the future, let's say 10 years from now, I know you've uh, you've got one external board role at the moment. I mean, do you see yourself moving into a broader portfolio career or what's next for you? Yeah, well, um, look, we've got a, you know, I'll be retiring from this gig in the you know, not too distant future, um, and which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously uh, succession and getting all that right is, uh, is part of the, the, the challenges I've got now. Uh, look, I do sit on an outside board, uh, Wamco in in Western Australia, which has uh, uh, exports prime lamb into the US and other parts of the world, which right. uh, is a whole different ball sure. game. Uh, talking, sitting around a, a boardroom, uh, talking about abattoirs and uh, selling produce into the US, which is very stimulating, and, yeah. and you talk about reinvigoration, all the rest of it. So I'll do some things like that. Um, and look, if if those type of board positions come along, I you know I have been approached by you know, headhunters and that sure. to, to to have a throw at the stumps on those types of things, but. I, I think you've got to perhaps you know, sit back, take a stock take as to you know what value can you add, sure. as opposed to what gig.
gig can I get to you know to pay the golf fees type of stuff and yeah. you know, and I think there's a you know uh, by that stage it'll I'll be uh, will have had you know 40 odd years and I'd like to do a bit of travel with my partner uh-huh. and uh, um, yeah to do some other things but okay. I, look I, I I I suspect that I won't be very good at doing nothing right um, and therefore you know I think if you've got enough enterprise and uh, enough contacts and and enough and enough uh, initiative there, there'll be plenty of things that come up and I suppose what you do look towards Richard is you know the job currently is a well it's either 40 hours a week or it's 80 hours a week or it's 100 hours a week um, you know there is the pressure of it uh, it is very stimulating but you know there's some pressure as well is that you look at drawing a line and saying well that part of your professional life's finished and take less pressure and perhaps a little add a few less hours yeah um, I think that that's a really good point I uh, am approached by CEOs and senior executives who are looking uh, at imminent retirement or you know stepping down from their gig as uh, you know leader of an organisation, and it's almost a preconception that you have to go to a board career. Mm. Um, Whereas the reality is I think a lot of people don't actually think about, do I actually want this responsibility and can I add real value? Um, So I think the fact that you're, you know, questioning that in yourself is is a good thing because um, very few people in my experience um, uh, have the self-awareness to ask themselves those kind of questions. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think that's critically important. I mean, if you can't add value, uh, sitting around a board table when you're not adding value um, is not good for you. It's not good for your own professionalism. It's not good for the company. And that's where we see governance mistakes because people just you know, roll up and tick the boxes. Yeah. Uh, and look, I, I, it's probably not what I should say, but I suspect so much of uh, the directorships and you know, what I see around it, so much of it about is ticking the corporate governance box mm-hmm. and making sure we've got every corporate governance thing, mm-hmm. so make sure we take all the risk risk out of it uh, and in actual fact you know have they really got close enough to the business not to interfere with management but to understand mm-hmm. what's going on and mm-hmm. um, and, look, and I suppose that's why I'd be not so much selective but you'd want to make sure that your skill base you take to it uh, is going to add value and you know and also be stimulating Absolutely. Um, and look I, I, I look and I suspect that's sometimes why boards end up in a situation where not say they get the wrong directors, but they might end up with directors because that's all they want to do, as opposed to the people that are out in the golf course or riding the bike or travelling, who perhaps could do it, uh, add more value to it, have just had enough, you know. Um, so it's getting, I, I think um, if you can get that balance right, which is exactly the same as when you're in professional life or any any CEO life too, if you, you know, you've got to have the balance between that and your family and all the rest of it as well type of stuff. So it, look, you know, like everything, it's about balance. Indeed. Right. Well, look, we're nearing the end of the conversation. So I suppose just to close out, if uh, there are aspiring CEOs or, um, you know, managing partners or if, uh, professional services firms or just senior leaders um, listening to this, what, what are some of the, the key pieces of advice you'd say to them in terms of enabling them to achieve their full career potential? Well, obviously, I mean, you know, you've got to work hard. Uh, I think you should listen to listen to other people. I mean, I was lucky enough to have some good mentors when I was younger uh, that kind of set you up and got you thinking. Um, I think in a, certainly in professional life, you've got to remember that most of these are partnerships. You've, you've got to you, – you have to have that partnership ethos of and the quality of, of you know, of, of what's going on in the business. Um, I think, you know, when we get back to um, leadership and everything, it is about listening to the people, getting close to the people and having a very uh, – you've got to be a bit of your own – well, you've got to be your own man from the point of view of – uh, setting a strategic site, being fairly confident that that's where you want to go, be confident.
confident that you're going to bring the people with you, and that ultimately, when you get there, that you know, you know that everybody's going to win out of the out of the equation. Um, I think you've got to enjoy it. Um, you've got to treat it as more than a job. You've got to be stimulated by it. Uh, I think you've got to get the balance between home and and that right. Um, other than that, it's <laughs> business as usual, I think, sure. Richard. Yeah, that might be very simplistic, but uh, that's how I see it. Well, I think the reality is it is the simple things that, uh, you know, get the outcomes. Uh, yeah. You know, the cliches are cliches for yeah. a reason, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, look, I think you, you do need to um, surround yourself with the best people and people that that agree with the strategy and, and are, are happy to share success. You need to surround yourself with people that are prepared to share success. Um, and, and as a leader, you must share success as well. Uh, and, and I think that's you know that's pretty critical to, I suppose, going back to the culture we talk about at, at our place. Sure. Well, look, uh, thanks for your time, Kim. Thanks, I've really Richard. enjoyed the conversation. Before we wrap up, any final things you'd like to add or anything you'd like to say to the audience? Well, no. Well, I, I must admit, when you rang me the other day, I thought, hang on, this is a bit confronting. People are going to ask me what I've been doing for 42 years. I'll have to think about it. Um, no, not really. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, as I say, I think from a CEO and, and those type of things, our ability to share with each other, whether it's by podcast, by telephone call or by informal networks, is critically important. Uh, so I thank you for the opportunity. Oh, look, that's uh, my pleasure. And uh, thanks. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. there you have it, our conversation with Kim Hutchinson, and I hope you enjoyed it. I think that it would be easy to think that somebody who has remained in the same organisation for 43 years could become a little jaded and a little bit disengaged, but it is obvious from Kim's enthusiasm that he still loves his job and is uh, constantly looking for new ways to innovate and create the challenges necessary not only to keep himself excited about the work, but to keep the organisation at the forefront of their industry. Uh, I thought that Kim's uh, emphasis around communication and culture is a strong lesson for all of us in business, and I really enjoyed spending the last hour with him, as I hope you did also. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to seeing you on future podcasts soon. Bye-bye.